Hey everyone, Eric here. A lot more people in Washington and other capitals are focusing more attention on what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa, the Middle East, the Americas. But this isn't an issue that you can simply jump into and expect to understand what's going on. Things are moving just way too fast. And this is a story that really doesn't fit neatly with a lot of the prevailing narratives. And that's why the newsletter that we produce is so important. It's the day-to-day tracking of this story that will help you get up to speed. We meticulously go through hundreds of sources every day to bring you a concise digest of the day's top China news from Africa and throughout the global south. And then we deliver it straight to your inbox Monday to Friday at 6 a.m. Washington time. Try it free for 30 days. See if you like it. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, there's an interesting bill that's making its way through the United States Congress. It just passed through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee just this week, and now it's going to be going to the broader Senate floor where 100 senators will debate and eventually vote on it. And it's all about how the United States can confront China's influence around the world and challenge China around the world. And what was interesting for our audience is just at the last minute on Wednesday, they slipped in a bunch of clauses about Africa. So let me read through some of these things because I think it's going to be really interesting just to see where we are in the U.S.-China-Africa relationship today. Section 271 of this new bill says they want an assessment of political, economic, and security activity of the People's Republic of China in Africa. So here's what they want. Within six months after it goes into effect, Congress wants the Secretary of State and the Director of National Intelligence to provide a comprehensive report on Chinese political activities, investment, soft power, and the analysis of, and I'm quoting here, methods and techniques that China uses to exert undue influence on African governments. Very interesting. Section 272, increasing the competitiveness of the United States in Africa. So again, within six months of passage, Congress will require the Departments of Treasury, Commerce, they want USAID, the Development Finance Corporation, and a number of other executive branch agencies to provide a multi-year strategy for increasing United States economic competitiveness in relation to the Chinese in Africa. Now, interestingly on this part, is that uh, subsection six of this clause also calls for the convening of a regular U.S.-Africa leader summit. So another summit on the calendar for African leaders to go to, as if they didn't have enough of those already. Section 273, we're almost done here. Digital security cooperation with respect to Africa. The president will be required to form an interagency working group that will develop methods to, quote, counter Chinese cyber aggression with respect to Africa, end quote, 
One of the recommendations that Congress wants from this task force, Cobus, is how to provide African governments and telecom operators with what they say are alternatives to Huawei. So they are not giving up on the Huawei thing in Africa. The final section here, section 274 of the bill, increasing personnel in the United States, uh, in U.S. embassies in sub-Saharan Africa, focused on the People's Republic of China. Basically, they want to have more people who are monitoring China in U.S. embassies in Africa. So, Cobus, what is so interesting about the language that's used in this bill is that it's as if the U.S. government is almost starting from scratch in its understanding of what the Chinese are doing. Not as if this has been going on for 15 years or you and I have been producing 525 episodes <laughs> on the Chinese in Africa. You almost wish that they would be like, go check out the podcast for the past 10 years and you'll probably be up to speed on everything you need to know. But what's going to happen here, most likely, and you know this better than I do, so I'd like to get your take, is that should this bill make its way out of the Senate, into the House, onto the president's desk to be signed, which it probably will, because anything with the word China on it today in Washington just greenlights and goes very fast. And by the way, the vote in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was 21 to 1 to pass this bill. Those are numbers you don't see in Washington very often anymore. That is a bipartisan number. But so what's going to happen is that after it makes it into law, goes out, they're going to fan out to think tanks and to scholars and to people like you at the South African Institute of International Affairs. And they're going to say, help us figure out all of these questions that Congress wants us to, to answer for them. They're going to have their own resources, but they're also going to draw on think tanks and scholars to do that. Now, the United States has a lot of resources to do that. So in a place like Washington, there's the Center for Strategic and International Studies. There's Deborah Braudigam's Institute at Johns Hopkins University, the China-Africa Research Initiative. We've spoken with Kevin Gallagher at Boston University on this. There are so many. So there's no shortage of, of resources. But in a place like Africa, and we've talked about this on a number of occasions, the number of think tanks that provide the guidance for policymakers is significantly smaller to the point where it's actually a crisis. You know, yeah, this this is an issue. There, obviously, there are you know a, a, a number of African think tanks. Um, you know, the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria, for example, PSIA, where I work, uh, CSEA um, in Nigeria, um, and you know they they do amazing work. But it's a it's a big continent, and there's a lot to cover. Um, so it it becomes harder to um, for the for these scholars to um, to develop specialization because there's so much pressure on them to produce stuff on, on a, a, a wide swath of, of issues. You know, so, so, so frequently people, people who would be working on, on um, who in, other, in other contexts would be working on a specific subsection of development, there, there's pressure on them to, to do work on many, many issues related to development at once. So there's a lot of pressure on them. And at the same time, you know, like, you know, the, 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 the U.S. government wanting information about China and Africa is one thing, but the main, the, their main constituency is, of course, Africa. Um, and African policymakers particularly need insight on, on, on Chinese activity in Africa, and so do African populations. So it's not only an issue of, of producing knowledge and then exporting it, you know, which, which is, a, which is a, 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 an old problem in relation to between the, the West and Africa particularly, um, but it's, it's, it's particularly to, to produce knowledge from an African perspective that really feeds into African conversations. I guess the reason why I said the 
the word crisis in my throat to you was because there isn't enough expertise specifically on China. So you mentioned there are quite a few think tanks in Africa, especially in South Africa. But how many of them have people like you who are dedicated to just exploring China? Not many. Not many. And, and frequently, there's, there's this particularly kind of, I, I think throughout the continent, South Africa is a slightly different, but I think throughout the, throughout the continent, actually including South Africa, there's a real like like deficit in people who have Asia capability, not particularly only China, but also Japan, Korea, India, and so on, you know, so so people who focus on, on Asia-Africa relations, you know, there, there's more of them now slowly, but that that's there's a real lack of them, I think, as a whole. There are some enormous gaps in the understanding. We talked about that in our debt discussion about the Chinese loan contracts with Bradley Parks from Aid Data, about whether or not African stakeholders are coming to the debt talks with all of the information that they need to make competent decisions about their, their the, the contracts they're signing with the Chinese. So I think that this reveals some big gaps, as you've talked about in the think tank space, in the negotiating space. And so that's why it was interesting to us when earlier this month we saw the launch of the Afro-Sino Center of International Relations in Accra, Ghana. It's this new idea of a think tank. So rather than having a, a big physical space, it's a virtual think tank. And it was co-founded by Pam Karslake, who's brought together some really interesting people to put together policy papers, position papers, and, and ideas, and, and fill that thought space on Sino-African relations, but from a distinctly African perspective. Pam joins us on the line from Accra, Ghana. A very good morning to you, Pam. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Kobus. Well, congratulations on the launch of Afro Siner Center of International Relations. It's been around for two years, but you finally, just earlier this month, you kicked it off. Tell us a little bit about, give us the headlines about what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish, and that space you're trying to fill. So Afro Siner was established, like you said, we set up two years ago, and we only just launched um, last week. We realized that there was a gap in in like the looking at the relations, analyzing the implications of Afro-Sino from the African vantage point. And that is why the center was established. Um, also to stress, I want to stress on this, that looking at the African, Africa-China relations from the African vantage point doesn't exactly mean that the Western vantage point is inaccurate because we haven't really started our research yet, but we, we just want to um, put it out there that if there's going to be a Western vantage point, then there's no reason why there shouldn't be uh, an Afro-Sino centre or a centre looking at relations from the African vantage point. Uh, our work. So our mandate is in threefold. We're going to re do research, um, advocacy and then consultancy. For we have three pillars of research. We want to we want to focus on the economy, the environment, and education because we realise that these are the three um, important areas of collaboration between the two partners. We also have a, a long term research focused on African Union and the Beijing Action Plan. What we want to do is we want to analyse the Agenda 2063 aspirations and the Beijing Action Plan to see where they align and how they align. 
and um, the realities of so compare the realities of Chinese engagement to these documents and aspirations. Um, and then based on that, we want to be able to produce assessments report to support policymakers in decision makings in the during FOCAC and AU summits. So I was wondering, you know, how how you bring this kind of need for an African perspective to bear to this 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 kind of wider kind of system of knowledge production in relation to 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 Africa as as we've seen in the intro you know this this kind of like drive from 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 international powers to to not only gather information about about China Africa relations but also to frame that 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 information in in particular kind of ways it was very interesting for me in the in, in the text for example that that Eric quoted the how Chinese influence in in Africa is is immediately labeled as undue influence whereas you say France's influence is just a-okay you know so you know like how how do you bring like how, how does one um, develop this kind of like you know kind of focus on African focused knowledge production for African audiences compared to the, the the kind of funding pressure to produce this kind of knowledge for Western audiences so the thing is, we don't just want to focus on Africa or China. There is also space for like other players like the West. What we want to do is we don't want to just influence African policymakers or Chinese policymakers. We also want to be able to influence um, Western policies on the continent. For instance, to our research, what we want to be doing is looking at the Beijing action plan and how they align to Africa, achieving the Africa that we want in, like, in the uh, Agenda 2063 aspirations. What we're going to be doing in our research is looking at how China is helping Africa to achieve this and um, the gaps that need to be filled to help Africa achieve those aspirations. And those gaps could be filled by the West or other partners. And who are some of the people that you have recruited to do some of this research that will ultimately create the knowledge that policymakers and others will use? Through our network, we, we got in touch with Dr. Jimmy Munson, who is at Michigan State. She's been very helpful. Uh, through her network with the CAAC, Dr. Yun Park, we've been able to recruit some senior China-African experts, um, such as Dr. Aaron Tesfai, uh, Dr. Joseph Onjala, and then we've got some research fellows, such as uh, Dr. Kwame, who is at the Chicago University, Urbana University. And then we've got our own homegrown research associates who are doing PhD. They also have real uh, significant interest in China and Africa space. They've shown how reliable and interested they are in undertaking these research. So um, with the help of these senior experts in the field, um, that we are trying to, to build a team that would be able to help us, a strong team led by, this, by the senior research fellow supported by the board who has diverse experience. And together we are trying to conduct this research. Circling back to, uh, to the advocacy part of, of, of your work, which issues are you going to be focusing on and what kind of, what kind of you know, targets do you do you envision for like you know who which which constituencies are you going to target for your advocacy and around which issues? Okay, so advocacy, we're going to be focused on our three research pillars: economy, environment, and education. And there are so many issues surrounding these, and these are the the pillars that we're going to be focusing on to 
and addressing issues surrounding these research pillars. And of course, if anything else pops up, which we feel the need and we think is critical, um, that needs to be advocated, we are also going to take that on board. Um, in respect to constituencies, we haven't. We're going to be in Accra, so we're going to going to start with Accra. Um, maybe like the western region, because that is where there are a lot of environmental uh, implications and Chinese engagements going on there, the western region of Ghana, um, and in Accra. Do you think it's going to be a hard sell to get African governments or other stakeholders to engage you for this kind of research? I think it would be in the beginning, um, because we're young, we're new. And they may be a bit hesitant in getting in touch with us and um, opening up to us. But hopefully with, with our work, we want to um, start off by doing more, putting our work out there, gaining more credibility. And hopefully they'll be able to see the impact of that we want to make and get interested in what we're doing. Kobus, you've identified that there's a need in the marketplace for better information about China but is there a demand for it? Do governments actually want this? Because I know, for example, in China, it's incredibly difficult to get outside views into the bloodstream of politics there. Very, very difficult. There's this sense of, we know what we're doing. We don't need any help. Thank you very much. They've got their 10 think tanks. They're good. Is it the same in Africa that you've seen, especially in places like South Africa or the big countries in like Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, who, who do do a lot of negotiations with the Chinese. Is there a demand for this kind of knowledge? I think there is. I mean, you know, it, it, it depends particularly kind of on, on the particular policymaker frequently because obviously the teams who work with China, you know, are, are more directly on the hook for, you know, for good outcomes. And so I think I think there is a demand. I think the problem maybe is more that, that a lot of these officials are incredibly... Uh, kind of overstretched, um, you know. So, so frequently, and you know, we, we've experienced that, that that it's sometimes difficult to 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 get the ear of, for example, of of the the Department of International Relations and Cooperation in South Africa, um, simply because their officials are so <laughs> overstretched and overworked. Um, you know that 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 sometimes they, you know, they, they, there's just not enough people, and not and then they're kind of expected to to cover so many different fields. Um, Pam, in, in in Ghana, um, do you do you see the development of of particularly kind of China focused cap um, capability and and expertise in the Ghanaian government? Is is there a move to to try and kind of recruit more people with that expertise to actually like like join the the Ministry of Foreign Affairs there? Not that I've not that I've realised. Although it's quite uh, interesting because of course like China and Ghana. The bilateral cooperation is tightening by the by every month, every second. Um, they recently, I think there's been an agreement to build uh, another foreign affairs ministry for the for the ministry, which they built the first one. They built the one the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that is currently being occupied by the foreign officers. Um, there's news that they're going to be building another one to to help with the rising. Um, work the increase in workers with the foreign with the foreign ministry, but I haven't. I don't think that there's a particular interest in in recruiting people with 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 expertise in in Chinese affairs. Or no, I don't think so. There isn't a particular target, at least not that I'm aware of. 
Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Wits University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za. China's been very effective over the years, and our good friend Lena Ben-Abdallah at Wake Forest University has done some excellent research on this, on co-opting and enticing African scholars to, I'm trying to find the language here, to kind of appreciate their worldview. And there's a lot of junkets that they go over on, there's a lot of exchanges that they go on. And in many universities in Africa, and we see this in the op-eds that show up in the newspapers from, from scholars, are very pro-Chinese. And they're very enthusiastic about the Chinese. They're very also they they help rally against some of the Western narratives about the Chinese in Chinese propaganda and whatnot. If the Chinese come to you and they might and say, would you like to go on these junkets? We can make money available for you. We can provide resources to you. We can provide access, equipment, whatnot. Do you have a policy or a plan in place on how you're going to deal with that? Well, we have um, values. And our, one of our values is we want to be objective as possible. Um, we don't want to be we want to be nonpartisan, and um, as long as we don't compromise on these values, we're we're good. So, would you take an invitation uh, for a Chinese paid junket to go to China to study? If you know, as part of these academic exchanges that they have, the think tank forums, the the scholar exchanges where they bring people over for two weeks to show them China and whatnot. If, was, is that something that you guys would would entertain? To show to show us um, what China is about, maybe it would be to look at the perspective of China, but it wouldn't really influence us in our work of what we're doing. Um, I think that as a as a research center focused on Africa-China relations, it's also important to know um, about the other side, um, what China is doing, what we're about. Um, but then, as long as we are able to produce our objective. Um, reports about what we see and about the engagement. I think that it shouldn't be a problem for us. So it's it's very interesting for me to um, that 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 you chose um, environment as one of your key pillars, and I think it's it's a, it's a very smart choice. Um, so I was wondering, uh, you know, kind of the, the the Ghana is an interesting country in the sense that there is high levels of awareness of environmental issues, and also a, a lot of kind of activism around uh, around the Chinese side of those issues, around illegal gold mining, around fishing, around um, you know, like all, all of these all of these different issues, um, and. So I was wondering, kind of, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that, about the the, the kind of the, the role of environmental activism in Ghana and how it kind of features into the, the national conversation on, on China-Africa issues. We chose environment as a pillar because we realised that environment is very topical. It, um, there's been global efforts to fight climate change and China is also trying to, to go green in its... Um, in this engagement to be more green and to be more mindful. And in Ghana, it's very interesting here because the environmental implications of Chinese engagement has been very negative. Um, starting off with Galamse, illegal gold mining in, in rural areas, especially in the western region of the country. There's been a lot of Chinese mining 
gold illegally, small scale mining. Um, in some in some certain cases, large because they have the machinery and equipment. Um, but these these engagements in gold mining have had detrimental impact on the environment, especially the water bodies. A lot of water bodies have been polluted through um, through Galamsey. There's been a lot of complaints, up to date people on on radio on the airwaves. That is what is talked about the most, um, the pollution of our water bodies. And um, the president in 2017 promised to, to end Galamsey, uh, even criminalised um, illegal mining, but it's still going on. Um, it's still going on. There's been conferences, there's been seminars. It's nothing as... Nobody seems to know what is, what is happening, if it's ending any time soon, but the... But the activism is still is still going on. It's up to it's up to the the policymakers to actually take charge and and act. Um, also, there was the two billion pound Sino hydro deal signed um, by the government of the country and China. There's been activism on on the bauxite extraction and its impact on the Atiwa the Atiwa forest. And this has been all over the news. Even it had stars like Leonardo DiCaprio commenting on on the impact on on the Atua forest and the deforestation. But it seems like the deal is still going on. So um, the government is still, is still. I think they're probably prioritizing the economy over over the environmental implications of of the engagement. And that is always really dicey. Trying to balance the environment and like economic implications of the engagement between the two partners. Well, the new center is called the Afro-Sino Center of International Relations. It's uh, co-founded by Pam Karslake in Accra. It promises to bring together young scholars from around the world and in Ghana and around Africa to bring a distinctly African point of view to some of these issues. Uh, Pam, if people want to find out more or to engage your services, where can they find you? Yes, we're available. We are on Facebook, Afrosino Center. We also have our website, Afrosino, ASCIR.org. We'll, pick, we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Pam, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to introduce us to the work that you guys are doing. It's very exciting, and we're really, really happy to have the chance to find out more about it. Thank you so much, Eric and Kobos, for inviting me. It's been, it's been great chatting with you. Kobos, there is such a demand for the knowledge. Again, I'm not sure if people are going to pay for it as much as, as as they would hope, only because I know how difficult it's been for us to sell our services. And I know at SIA and other think tanks, it's always a, a challenge to raise money and to get people to pay for knowledge. That is across the board the way it is. All think tanks seem to be in that hustle, maybe with the, some of the exceptions of the big money ones in Washington. But certainly in Africa and in developing countries, it's not easy to get scholars, to pay for work, to pay for knowledge and whatnot. So that'll be a big challenge. That being said, let's put that aside for now. In addition to helping to fill the void on the African perspective on these important issues, there's also something that I think is really interesting about what they're doing, is that it's also coming from a youth perspective. And that I think is really interesting as well, because when we're talking about Africa, Let's not forget that this is a continent where the median age is 19.7 years old. In some countries, it's as low as 17, 18 years old. And so to get voices like Pam's into the mix, which is coming from a youth point of view, I think it's great. 
And I think sometimes the, with all due respect, Cobus, <laughs> the older PhDs sometimes have a distinct point of view. And we, we need that youthful energy in there to provide, I think, some of those alternate ways of looking at some of these issues that maybe the older, more established, traditional think tank scholars would miss. Yes, I think it's, it's very important. The um, particularly in Africa, this this kind of um, kind of bottom up young perspective is 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 really crucial. Um, particularly also because because the the leaders tend to be so old, you know. So so it's so so young people frequently find themselves completely unrepresented. So SIA, for example, has a full separate program that's just about youth engagement. You know, and they do they do like amazing work. So yeah, I think I think it's really it's really important. It's it's kind of the the, the the perspective one wants more African scholars to work from, you know, um, but the, but the, the challenges are getting the funding for it because the um, you know obviously the difference between think tanks and universities are that universities also get tuition funds, you know, think tanks are on the hook for to just make money off their research, um, and increasingly there's from funders there's, there's increasing demands to demonstrate like real kind of quantifiable impact, you know, um, which is a very difficult thing for a think tank to actually do. Like a lot of think tanks have a whole separate kind of staff sections just dedicated to, to kind of tracking that monitoring, monitoring that that kind of impact, you know, um, and, and kind of and getting the kind of metrics for it is, is, is very challenging. So, so you know, it's, it's a challenging field to move into, but I think it's incredibly encouraging that they are moving into it. I'm interested to get your take on the three themes that they picked. So economy, environment, and education. And the reason why I think those are interesting is because those align with youth priorities. The economy is about finding jobs and employment. The environment obviously is about sustainability, which is a very youth-oriented issue. And education is key, and that's a very youth-oriented issue. So it seems like the three pillars that they're building the center on are really anchored in that youth point of view. Not on their list are the geopolitics that I think would be most common at a U.S. or European think tank. So when we talk about an African perspective versus a Western perspective, my guess is that at IFRI, which is the Institute of French International Relations in Paris, or at CSIS in Washington, at a number of the think tanks, it's driven by politics. Hmm. No politics that we talked about at all today. We didn't also talk about tech, which I thought was interesting because that could trend a lot younger too about the impact of tech on and Chinese tech. And there was a great report that came out from CounterPoint Research this week that showed that techno for the first time dethroned Samsung as the number one mobile phone in the smartphone sector. So Chinese tech is, is a key vector for lots of different discussions. So that, that kind of surprised me that tech wasn't on their space, but environment, economy, and education all seem very youth-oriented. I think it's a very smart selection. I think I, I would assume that that the kind of you know obviously different think tanks have different different kind of focuses, and not all of them would necessarily focus on something like tech. But but I think if they do, it it fits quite effectively in into an economy pillar. You know, um, I think the it's it's it it it's very smart. I think also because it really reflects an, the, the kind of African perspective on on China Africa relations, which is not particularly interested in geopolitics. You know, geopolitics is a luxury I think in Africa um, whereas development is the real thing um, and so you know so so this is this is very kind of like very like clearly kind of hard-nosed honing in on, on particularly on 
development issues that really kind of, uh, you know, really concern, I think, all Africans and particularly young Africans. I hope they will get an opportunity soon to show what they can do. And especially because they're pioneering this new model, which, and I say a new model only because your think tank, your institute, the South African Institute of International Affairs, has a physical space in it, right? So you've got an office. You, you're working from home now, obviously, like everybody else because of the pandemic, but you're anchored in a traditional setup. And these guys are building themselves from the beginning to be virtual, which I find very interesting because it allows them to tap a much broader array of experts around the world, irrespective of geography and location. And I think that's in some ways where the workforce is going. It's a little bit like an online bank. It never had its roots in a physical bank, so it never has to make the transition over to being digital. This is a digital first organization, which I think is really fascinating and well-suited for the time that we're in. Yeah, it's it's also, you know, traditional think tanks were very they were very diplomat adjacent, you know. So so they it, it, a lot of it a lot of their work is very similar to traditional diplomacy in the sense that it's a lot about about making relationships and then, you know, kind of like having kind of private private off the record conversations, you know, kind of with with people like diplomats. So it makes sense for a, a traditional kind of think tank in a place like Washington DC, for example, to have meeting rooms, for example, because you want to bring those people in and you know kind of in, and you want to have these kind of like close kind of one-on-one -on -one relationships with them but in a place like Accra which isn't necessarily such a kind of a crossroads you know where where people would be kind of moving through you know kind of or, or like have have a half a day layover like they would in, in Paris for example there it, it kind of starts making a lot more sense to focus on vir on virtual networks because then you can just pull in many many more people and and it's not and it's not kind of as as pricey and as kind of like heavy on your organization as a physical space would be well we hope that people will check them out follow their path and their growth and to see what they're doing again i'm going to put links to all of their facebook and their website channels in the show notes and i'm really curious to see how they progress uh very quickly before we go cobus you have an article coming out in politico uh this week which is always an accomplishment politico is a widely read politics news site in the United States, especially in the D.C. Beltway. Tell us about what you wrote about for Politico this week. They asked me to to reflect on U.S.-China-Africa relations, um, particularly now with with this new, uh, you know, the new bill going through and, and all of this kind of very, like, official kind of high level of appetite for, for new information on, on China-Africa relations. The main point that I made was that there's a lot of space for the U.S. to to work well with Africa, um, and that there's a, there there may well be a lot of issues around Chinese engagement with Africa that the U.S. want to take issue with and and deal with and and, and try and challenge. But the thing that the, the the one thing that that they need to let go of is this fantasy of of displacing China and Africa or kicking China out of Africa because like that I think just isn't going to happen like the China Africa relationship isn't going anywhere China is going to be a major development partner to Africa for many years to come and any kind of US kind of engagement with Africa needs to focus on the Africa side rather than on the challenging China side like you know the US needs to show up for Africa and and be a partner to Africa and that and and if 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 they then challenge China in that way then great but there's no way of like 
challenging China and Africa directly because the China is there for a reason, and that reason is that African governments want to work with China. Yeah, and you can see that that language in the bill of trying to extricate China from Africa just in the Huawei language, provide alternatives. And the reason why I found that so interesting was simply because there again, 0 for 55, 0 for 55, not a single African stakeholder has said, you know what, America, you're right, we're not going to use Huawei. Not one. And yet they are still banging on this drum. And I think that is representative of a broader point that, and this is where African agency really steps into it. We talked about Joe Machiro, the ICT minister in Kenya a couple of weeks ago. This is something Cyril Ramaphosa has pushed back on. A number of senior African officials have said, you know what, the U.S., this is where the line is. And you've crossed the line on things like Huawei. So I think that there's a lot more confidence coming from the African side to tell the United States, okay, this is where we want you. This is where we don't want you. But here's where I lose my mind on what's going on with the U.S. and Africa regarding the Chinese. So the Americans have said for a long time that we're not going to ship vaccines overseas simply because we need to take care of our people at home first. Everybody kind of gets that. The politics of the moment demand it. A story came out today in Reuters, which I thought was very interesting, is that the vaccine programs that are underway in many African countries, including in Ghana, using COVAX vaccines in particular, are falling down, not necessarily because of a shortage of vaccines, which is a chronic problem, but also because they lack the facilities, the trained personnel, uh, not just the supplies for the vaccines themselves, but also the syringes, the disposal methods of it. There's so much around it. These are the things that USAID is so good at. We saw that during the Ebola crisis. We've seen this year in and year out, decade in and decade out, that USAID can mobilize quickly to do a massive intervention. And yet, nothing. We haven't seen USAID do a massive intervention on COVID support in Africa, as far as I know. Maybe they have. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Yeah, and so yeah. here is the opportunity, and yet it's low-hanging fruit for the Americans because this is what USAID was actually built for, is they could go in and, and, and really do the, 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 the foundational support on a vaccine campaign where they don't even have to bring in the vaccines, let COVAX do that, or Chinese vaccines, but they could put all the support personnel, the equipment, the logistics, all of the things that they do, they're not doing it. So if they're not doing this and they're talking about removing Huawei, I just wonder if their head is in the right space. That's my that's where I, I'm just confused. And that they yeah. need the Congress needs to get all these reports within six months from these intelligence agencies on what the Chinese are doing. Also, I found a little bit alarming. Mm. Like this isn't new. Yes. Like you and I have been talking about it for 10 years. Yeah, it's you know kind of it's again it's again this this kind of focus on on kind of knowledge production this kind of strategic knowledge production that that kind of cuts out the Africa side from that equation quite a lot you know um, and and particularly kind of cuts out African priorities um, from from that conversation it becomes all about Chinese priorities and Western priorities and like you know how to how to kind of balance the two and then and Africa kind of falls into this this role as a backdrop you know so that. That, that I think is is 
very worrying and problematic. Um, I think also that <laughs> the, I, I find all of this all of this kind of like talk about about replacing Huawei very funny because the one thing the one thing that I'm willing to bet money on no single African policymaker will ever cop to is this idea of that you have a perfectly perfectly kind of like fine recently installed like shiny new Chinese internet network, you know, in your country, please replace that exist, existing network with a different network. Instead of, because every single African policymaker to who that is proposed, will they, if the first thing they'll say is, oh, but you know this village that's like 100 kilometers away from this existing network, they have no network. Why don't you put that new network there? You know, that's that's African logic, and I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. And the idea that they're going to be taking out completely fine, you know, kind of workable new Chinese components to replace it with just new other non-Chinese components is risible. They never will. No, that'll never happen. That We know that, again, they're over 55. They haven't had any luck. I don't know if it's because of the bill that's in Congress right now, again, which is a China-focused bill, not an Africa-focused bill. The Africa language was just put in on Wednesday of this week. It was slipped in at the last minute. They also put in some language about Latin America as well. And that's revealing in terms of where the United States feels that Chinese influence needs to be checked the most, Africa and Latin America. Asia is a different story altogether because that is a primary theater of confrontation between the Chinese and the Americans. <laughs> but I can also tell you why why kind of Asia is also a different issue. It's because Asia, including increasingly ASEAN, just have more agency. So they just kind of don't lie down for this nonsense, you know. Um, whereas like Africa, it's, it's still possible to kind of push Africa around in this way. And, you know, kind of so, so it, you know, and, and, and that includes kind of minimizing whatever African wants, Africans want, right? Kind of it, it, it like minimizing African priorities and again, kind of flattening the, the, the continent into this idea of like a background or a theater for, of, of action, you know. But the thing is, is that I think Africans have increasingly kind of like less patience for this. Um, you know, and they, and, they, and they kind of like push back very sharply, I think, increasingly. Also because, you know, because the thing is, you know, what, what, what isn't, <laughs> what is never acknowledged, I think, in, in, in this work is that it's not only this kind of production of, of knowledge, right, kind of as if knowledge production is, is value-free, right? The, 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 the kind of strategic framing of this knowledge production in some kind of ways taint the very value of that knowledge, Right, kind of because it's also instrumentalist, and it's also kind of focused on trying to 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 prove a point, you know, kind of, you know, and and it's frequently funded by people in Washington in order to prove a point to other people in Washington, right? So, so in that sense, the 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 kind of that that loop of knowledge production, which doesn't, which kind of like bypasses African African policymakers or African audiences, increasingly that itself is just not so valuable to do right kind of like no 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 matter how prestigious these think tanks are so you know and, and i think increasingly you're kind of getting real pushback from africa on this issue two other very quick points before we go today again i'm not sure if it's because of the bill or the mood in washington right now but army general stephen townsend who is the top commander for u.s forces in africa you may know that by africom is the name they go by he's talking about the chinese in africa and he wrote quote uh, China and Russia don't ignore Africa, and that alone should say something. So he's trying to rally support among the American public to get more engaged in Africa and to think that it's an important theater as well. Uh, interestingly, Kobus, in our kind of tracking of the use of the word debt trap, it has gone away for the most part. 
but General Townsend did bring it back up. So there we go. One of the outliers in the U.S. government. Praise to the U.S. government. They've <laughs> stopped using it for the most part. We're not hearing the Secretary of State talk about it anymore because the theory has been so thoroughly debunked so many times by so many scholars inside the government, outside the government. But the Pentagon has apparently not gotten the message that we're no longer using debt trap because that doesn't work anymore. So General Townsend, if you or your staff are listening to the show, strike debt trap from the message points because the rest of the government isn't using it anymore. Also, Aubrey Ruby at the Atlantic Council, she wrote an excellent U.S.-Africa policy paper, a position paper, what she's recommending the State Department and the White House do for Africa policy. And she has a lot of references to China in there as well. She says a lot of what you say, Kobus, which is have a policy for Africa that is focused on Africa and U.S. interests. Stop talking about China. This is not going to help us get where we need to go. And But yet I think it's too hard. It's kind of like putting a big jar of M&Ms in front of me. You're going to say, don't eat the M&Ms. And I'm going to be like, I'm not going to eat the M&Ms. I'm going to eat the M&Ms. No way I can avoid it. I don't think the Americans have that kind of resistance. But we will see lots of changes going on in the foreign policy space. Lots of changes, obviously, now in the African knowledge space. We were so happy to have the chance to talk to Pam. Uh, these are the issues. I mean, again... Everything that we talked about today showed up in our newsletter last week and when the day it happened. So if you follow China-Africa relations really closely and what China's doing, and if you are one of the, what I presume are going to be hundreds, if not thousands of people that are going to be engaged by this law to follow what the Chinese are doing in Africa, please save yourself a lot of time and sign <laughs> up for our newsletter, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We'll even give you 20% off because we know our friends in the U.S. government have limited budgets. Use the promo code podcast at checkout. But basically what we are doing is I spend 12 hours a day sifting through all of the news, finding the quote by General Townsend, going through the bill, stripping out of the bill all of the references to China so that in that newsletter, you don't have to spend hours looking for all that stuff. I prepare it right there for you. It's designed to save you time. If you're a journalist, an analyst, a scholar, an intelligence operative, a diplomat, all of those people subscribe right now to the newsletter. They find it useful. We drop it at 6 a.m. Washington time, Monday to Friday. And it's not only about Africa again, but about China and the global south. This is a popular topic in Washington and other capitals as well. So we hope that you will join our growing community of readers around the world. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Cobus or I directly. You can find me, Eric, at ChinaAfricaProject.com or Cobus, C-O-B-U-S, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And by the way, try out the newsletter. If you sign up, you get 30 days for free. You can just see if you like it. And then if you like it, keep going or cancel anytime, which we hope you won't do. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week for another show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter, Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.